this podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. From the WaltonTribune.com, on September 9th, 2020, snipers on the roof for historic 1983 trial. It may well have been Walton County's biggest trial of the 20th century. Sharpshooters were positioned around the old courthouse in downtown Monroe, and the gallery in Judge Greeley Ellis' courtroom was packed for the duration. However, it wasn't just small-town drama. The 1983 trial of Winter residents Harold Smith Chansey and Bobby Jean Goswick, Charles Cagle of Demarest, and Audie Jordan of Social Circle along with other defendants whose cases eventually were dropped, were a pretty big legal spectacle, too, capping off a case whose 1982 indictments even made the headlines of the New York Times. Chancey, Cagle, and Jordan faced charges of violating the Georgia Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Law, or RICO. Chancey and Jordan were accused of acquiring or maintaining property with racketeering funds, a drug enterprise of up to $500,000 for importing and distribution. Chancey's mother, Ruth, was also to go on trial, but was ill just before jury selection. It was the first time any state had tried to prosecute that aspect of a racketeering law. The murder charges came from an October 1976 arson that killed five children in the family of Mr. and Mrs. James E. Thomas Sr., who rented a home from Chancey's wife. Jeanette Charlotta Thomas, 18, Cynthia Kathleen Thomas, 15, Stephen Jeffrey Thomas, 12, Karen Leslie Thomas, 9, and Allison Linnell Thomas, 5, died Monday morning, October 11, 1976. Jeanette Thomas was born in Connecticut, and her younger siblings were born in New York. They had moved to Walton County just months earlier. The fire started at about 1.30 a.m. at the family's wooden home on U.S. 78 near Monroe, near where the Hitachi Automotive Systems Americas plant now stands. It took 20,000 gallons of water to extinguish the blaze. Two five-gallon cans were found at the home at the time of the fire. Within hours, state officials confirmed the cause was arson, and the children died of suffocation. District Attorney John Strauss contended that Goswick started the fire to collect $40,000 in insurance money. His attorney, Frank Martin, a future mayor of Columbus, contended that Goswick had an alibi. He was running liquor for Chansey that night. Chansey's ex-girlfriend, Barbara Bell, testified that Chansey had told her his mother, Ruth Chansey, became very upset he had rented the home to a black family. Although he said his hands were tied by the law, Bell said Chansey told her, yeah, we can burn it. He denied making the claim. Ruth Chansey had been indicted, along with the other four suspects on the murder charge, but her case was tried separately when she became ill just before the trial's February 28th start. She was treated at Georgia Baptist Hospital. Harold Chansey's attorney, Ed Garland of Atlanta, made a direct appeal to the four black jurors, asking them not to convict on the basis of identifying with the victims on racial lines. Cagle's attorney, Doug McDonald of Cornelia, said convicting his client of the murder would have compounded the Thomas's tragedy. Chansey was no stranger to Walton County. His stepfather, James O. Jim Dawes, the owner of a grocery store in downtown Monroe, went missing in November of 1971. Dawes was expected to testify in a Greenville, South Carolina federal court about moonshine operations involving Chansey and others. Sheriff Joe Chapman and recently revisited the Dolls case. He contacted the son of the late Billy Sunday Burt, who said his father killed Dolls, not because of his pending testimony. It was because Dolls was beating his wife, Ruth Chansey, who was involved in the infamous Dixie Mafia with Burt and Harold Chansey. Prosecutors found that in 1977, Harold Chansey and Cagle began to buy large amounts of marijuana to sell and distribute. Jordan joined their operation in the next year or two, making frequent trips to Florida to buy cocaine and marijuana with money they supplied him. In the summer of 1979, Cagle and his wife Jody bought a load of marijuana to Cagle's Lake House in northern Georgia, where Chansey and Jordan met them. Jordan brought a pound of cocaine along, and they cut it into a substance called mannitol. All three suspects were seen using cocaine at the Lake House, but Cagle denied in questioning by Strauss ever having used it. God can strike me dead right here if I've ever done any cocaine, Cagle testified. Prosecutors must have held their breath because they contended the suspects occasionally used the drugs out of shipments they imported to Georgia. From 1979 through November of 1980, Jordan made deliveries of large quantities of marijuana and cocaine to a service station and stash house in Atlanta, often accompanied by a man known alternatively as Mountain Man, Frog Man, 
and Bug Eye, all nicknames for Cagle. Jody Cagle and Belle, Chansey's ex-girlfriend, also testified they would hold large sums of money given to them by Charles Cagle and Harold Chansey, respectively, and use some of it to defray the cost of maintaining their homes. Diana Jordan, Audie Jordan's ex-wife, also testified she sometimes used money Audie Jordan gave her after he returned home from Florida to pay the mortgage on their home. On one occasion, in 1979, Chansey, Jordan, and Cagle picked up about $384,000 from a suitcase Jody Cagle held to buy marijuana in Florida. The Walton County Courthouse, the old one, at the corner of South Broad and East Spring Streets downtown, turned 100 in 1983, and it likely had never seen anything like what unfolded that spring. There was unprecedented security for the time, and a huge jury pool. Ellis didn't issue a gag order, but neither Strauss nor the defense attorneys would say much in the early going because of fears the trial would be moved. In fact, Garland, Harold Chansey's lawyer, subpoenaed Tribune executives in his bid to get the trial moved out of Walton County. Tapes of television news broadcasts were shown to the judge, as were clippings from the Atlanta newspapers and the Athens paper. A social circle resident was called to speak on the community's knowledge of the Chanseys and knowledge of the Dixie Mafia. Cagle's attorney submitted evidence of the Tribune coverage of racial issues dating back to 1946, the year of the lynching of four black people at the Morris Ford Bridge in Walton County. The issue of unsolved murder cases has been sticking in the side of black people for many years, McDonald said. According to the Tribune, 251 people were called for jury duty starting February 28th, but the Superior Court Clerk Bill Batchelor stood ready to call nearly an additional 1,300 citizens to serve if need be. It's a good thing he planned that, because 150 more residents had to be called after the first week. Several state patrol officers were stationed at the courthouse, and a metal detector was used to screen people going into the courtroom. A Georgia Bureau of Investigation bus was parked outside for the duration. Access to the courtroom was limited to 125 spectators once the trial began, with just 10 press passes issued. Kevin Little, chairman of the Walton County Board of Commissioners since 2001, was in high school at the time of the trial. He recalled last week that the balcony of the courtroom wasn't available then because it was used for offices. John M. Ott, now the chief judge of the Alcovy Circuit, was the chief assistant district attorney under Strauss. It was a big trial, let's put it that way, Ott recalled. I don't know if the circuit had had a trial that big, ever, with a multiplicity of defendants. There had to be special accommodations. That included bringing in tables to make space for the defendants and their attorneys at such a large trial. Ott said the county also secured a house to keep the jury sequestered in and brought jurors their meals. The Tribune reported that bailiffs monitored all of the jurors' telephone calls and supervised any visits by family. You had the leading attorneys of the state on the defense side, he said. They came to represent the defendants, and the importance of the case ultimately was it was the first RICO case in Georgia. It's the basis for a lot of the law in Georgia. It was just a big do. The courtroom would be packed with people, listening to people. One of those attorneys was Bobby Lee Crook, a famous defense lawyer from Chattooga County, representing Ruth Chancey. He's thought to have been the inspiration for the title character in Matlock. The jury finally was chosen March 14th. Attorneys and Ellis settled on eight men and four women, including four black residents, plus three alternatives to serve. Just missing the cut was Mike Sorrells, and that was quite all right by him. I got released like two days beforehand, but it was scary, he recalled last week. We walked out of the courthouse, and people were on top with guns. Sorrells said he remained in the mix for a day or two, then got released because he knew a lot of people in Walton County. I didn't want to be a part of it, to be honest, he said. Sorrells confirmed the reports of snipers are no urban legend that spread through the years. You could look around and see them, he said. They were there to protect us. It was a different time. Matter of fact, if I remember correctly, I think that there was one time they even put a vest on us. It was pretty intense. For a 22-year-old, that was unnerving. The jurors were bussed between the home and the courthouse and given the chances for exercise with supervision and some dining out in restaurants, albeit in private rooms. Strauss started the opening arguments March 17th. He told of Goswick's alleged role in tapping a pipeline in West Georgia in the 1970s to steal fuel. There were also oral fireworks with the surviving Thomas Child, James Thomas Jr. making an outburst. One of the defense attorneys asked for a mistrial, which Greeley denied. Jeanette Thomas, mother of the five fire victims, testified days later. Strauss noted the fire happened the same day another mental home owned by Ruth Chancey burned. An insurance agent testified that Ruth Chancey increased the coverage on both homes three months before the fires. The state rested its case on April 1st. Ellis denied the defendant's request for summary judgment, but did order charges dropped against two defendants, 
saying Strauss failed to present sufficient evidence. The racketeering charge against Goswick also was dropped. Strauss delivered his closing arguments April 8th, urging jurors to stop this Chancy racket. Verdicts were returned three days later, with the jury voting to convict Harold Chancy, Cagle, and Jordan. They were guilty of racketeering. But there was a mistrial in the murder charges against Chancy and Goswick. I will say, we were about as divided as mathematically possible. Jury foreman Richard Rupert wrote in a note to the judge. Several of the jurors later confirmed they split six to six. I believe we could have stayed there a hundred days and the situation wouldn't have changed. Juror J. Kuhn told the Tribune. Rupert said he thought many of the jurors thought the case was circumstantial at best. They those voting not guilty, would have liked some evidence that placed the defendants at the scene, he said. It was just not enough evidence to convince these 12 people. Kuhn said, jurors were praying for an eyewitness to get them over the hump. Rupert said jurors made the best decision they could. No one could fault them for the decision, he said. Sources close to the case estimated half a million dollars was spent on defense attorneys. The county spent $10,000 in pay to prospective jurors during the two-week jury selection period, and about 6300 was spent on jurors' food, entertainment, and transportation while they were sequestered. Ellis sentenced Chancey George Gordon and Cagle to the maximum 20-year prison sentences for racketeering in June of 1983 and ordered each to pay a $25,000 fine. Chancey was already in prison by then after a federal judge sentenced him to serve 30 years for violating his probation on a 1972 moonshining conviction. He was released from federal prison in 1991 and went to state custody, serving until 1996. He died September 11, 2003 at age 63. Ruth Chancey died December 16, 2008 at age 93. One of the weird aspects of the Dixie Mafia is that every state down here, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, all these states have their own stories of, of what the Dixie Mafia was doing. And, and you hear it. Like One of the ways this all connects together is the SBI in North Carolina. They put together a cold case squad, and that cold case squad had Johnny Gaskins on it, the guy from the first episode we're talking about that's later a criminal defense attorney. So... This squad of investigators is investigating cases that are unsolved, but there's a lot of those cases that sort of lend themselves to things you hear later in Dixie Mafia cases. And the other thing that ties all this together is all these people keep going to Florida. Like, like it's, it baffles me that that's where they hide out and that's where they get their drugs from. So you can, you can actually listen to In the Red Clay. It's a podcast about a person that's mentioned here. Billy Sunday Dirt. Billy Sunday Burt. Billy is like he's sort of quintessential the transition phase of the Dixie Mafia. But again, where I was going was to get from the eighties and the nineties to today, what did the Dixie Mafia look like after they were supposedly shut down in the eighties and nineties? And I had mentioned Leo Henson because he is tied to the person that I ended up in an inter interrogation room over. And all of that, it still goes back. It goes back to North Carolina's criminal justice reform that these, that these guys are all able to hook up. From the News and Observer on November 6, 1988, Martin accused of breaking crime promise. A Democratic Party official charged Saturday that Governor James G. Martin's administration had released a cocaine trafficker from prison last month after he served three years of a 35-year sentence. Kenneth L. Udy Jr., the Democrats' state executive director, accused the governor of breaking a promise that hardened criminals would not be released early from prison. Mr. Martin denied the charge. He said a law limiting the population of North Carolina prisons was forcing the state parole board which he appoints, to release prisoners who could pose a threat to society. We're in a dilemma, the governor said. On the one hand, we've got to let people out. On the other hand, they don't have anybody left to parole without releasing some who are convicted of drug violations. The law, which took effect 18 months ago, requires the parole commission to begin releasing prisoners who are eligible for parole. The best ones they can find, Mr. Martin said. When the prison population reaches 17,460, as it did on October the 19th. At a news conference in Raleigh, Mr. Udy said Philip Henry Barfield had been arrested in Newton Grove with firearms and one pound of cocaine. Mr. Barfield began serving his sentence in September 1985, and on October 24th of this year, he received community service parole from the prison in Duplin County. According to Mr. Udy, the Sampson County Assistant District Attorney, 
who prosecuted the case, opposed the parole. The governor, in a telephone interview between campaign stops in western North Carolina, said he had nothing to do with the release. I don't recommend anybody's parole. The parole board has its own staff. I cannot have any input into their decisions, he said. SBI Squad to Tackle Unsolved Murders From the News and Observer, August 1st. 1977. There are hundreds of murders each year in North Carolina, and some of them go unsolved. Unless the killers have died or are serving sentences for other crimes, they remain at large. Among the unsolved cases that gained statewide attention when the murders occurred are the July 29th murder in 1965 of Sue Ellen Evans, 21, a student at the University of North Carolina, who was stabbed to death in the campus arboretum at about noon on a sunny day. The July 1st, 1967 murder of Brenda Joyce Holland, 19, of Canton, a Campbell College student working as a makeup supervisor for the Lost Colony Outdoor Drama at Mantio, who was strangled and possibly raped. Her body was hurled off of a bridge into Albemarle Sound in Dare County. The June 17, 1970 murder of Nancy Morgan, 24, a Vista worker from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who was found nude, hogtied, and choked to death in her government car in Madison County. The February 26, 1971 murder of Jesse Allen McBain, 20, of Pittsburgh, a student at North Carolina State University, and his fiance, Patricia Ann Mann, 20, of Sanford, a student nurse at Watts Hospital in Durham, who were found in Orange County, tied to a tree and strangled to death. They had been abducted from a Durham street two weeks earlier. Such cases may be unsolvable, law enforcement officials say. The killer's trail may be too cold. There may be no witnesses, or the murderer may have died. However, there are other unsolved cases that authorities believe could be solved through a combination of skilled manpower, new laboratory forensic techniques, and a little old-fashioned luck. The simple fact is that there are quite a few people who have gotten by with cold-blooded murder. Attorney General Rufus L. Edmondson said last month in announcing the formation of the State Bureau of Investigation's Unsolved Homicide Squad. When the squad, manned by four or five agents, begins its work this summer, its members will zero in on select unsolved murders. Some are likely to be among those sensational murders that received widespread public attention. Others may be crimes that were little noticed outside the area where they occurred. Edmondston said local law enforcement agencies often lack the time, resources, or special training to solve complex murder cases. Deputy Attorney General Howard A. Kramer, explaining the criteria to be used in selecting cases, said in a recent interview that the special unit would have to use those cases where the time element would not make further investigation impractical. You've got to review the factual situation and elements in every case and whether there are areas that haven't been broached or whether they could lead to a satisfactory conclusion. The agents will review each unsolved murder case in SBI files, Kramer said. However, those cases include only cases in which the Bureau has been involved. Recommendations for review of cases not included in SBI files will be accepted from local district attorneys, he said. It is planned that the new unit will work closely with the state medical examiner staff, SBI technical experts, and local police and prosecutors. This unit can't act in a vacuum. They've got to coordinate with others, and our laboratory and our forensic people. Regardless of how far back the SBI decides to reach, the agents will have plenty of cases from which to choose. They range from routine slayings during robberies to murders with overtones of voodoo and bizarre psychosexual mutilation. Take, for example, the voodoo murders of Larry J. Shipman, Walter Glass, and Mrs. Louise Davis Shoemate in July 1967 near Hendersonville. The beaten and stabbed bodies of the three were found arranged in a semicircle, with Glass's crutches forming a cross on his chest. An 18-inch piece of scrap iron was on Shipman's throat, and a tire iron was thrust into Mrs. Shoemate. Glass was the author of a book on voodoo, and authorities puzzled over the meaning of the cross, the arrangement of the bodies, and how the 62-year-old woman came to be with the middle-aged bachelors. She apparently had not known them before the day of the slayings. Another case involved a Harnett County ripper who killed and mutilated one woman in late 1964, and another 15 months later in December of 1965. The first victim, Mary Louise Clary, 50, of Raleigh, was found in a Harnett County Creek only 15 inches deep. Mrs. Margaret Thomas, 24, of Scotland Neck, was found 15 months later in exactly the same place. Both had been disemboweled. Another bizarre case, the so-called Raleigh Mummy Murders, were thought to be the work of professional contract killers. On January 15, 1973, three people were found suffocated in a Tivoli Gardens apartment. Grover Shepherd Broadwell, 54, Della Murray, 20, 
and Michael Allen Collins, 33, died after they were wrapped in heavy construction tape. In other unsolved cases, David M. Stell, 32, was killed by a shotgun blast on December 5, 1960, in front of his rural Wake County store eight miles north of Raleigh. His wallet, containing $270, was untouched. James Elwood Warren, 44, was found bound and gagged, dead of suffocation, on October 18, 1963, in his apartment at 401 Hillsborough Street in Raleigh. Mary Alice Marshall, 22, was a student at a Dunn Beauty School, found shot to death in a cornfield two miles from Clayton on June 12, 1964. The naked body of Patsy Stevens, 17, of Fayetteville, was found in the Cape Fear River in March of 1965. North Carolina's largest mass murder and most intensively investigated case in recent years remains open and under both state and federal jurisdiction for investigation. It may not be assigned to the new squad. On March 17, 1976, five smoldering bodies were found in a shallow grave in Tyrell County near Columbia. They were later identified as Mrs. Annette Weiss Bishop, 38, her three sons, aged 4, 10, and 14, and her mother, Miss Labella Weiss, 68. Two days later, police entered the scene of the killings, their blood-spattered home in an affluent Washington suburb. A manhunt was launched for Mrs. Bishop's husband, William Bradford Bishop Jr., 40, a State Department official, but Bishop has never been located. We get sort of way out in the left field on some of this, and these are starting to become media now. Some of these cold cases are, like the, the Orange County case with the girl from the Watts Hospital. She and the man found tied to the tree. They're now a subject of the Long Dance podcast. You can, you can start to tell that they, they had some success with that squad. But, you know, Google any one of these cases and see what you come up with. It's, it's fascinating. Sue Allen's case at UNC, still open. These are more unsolved straight-up murder cases, but they could be tied to different organized crime. That's not really where we're going with all of this. I'm going to bring back in, like, why I mentioned Leo Henson and what he has to do with what's going on here. From the Fayetteville Observer in 2002, the big-time, small-town drug trail. Shortly before midnight on February 2nd, 2002, a Virginia wildlife officer knocked on Leo Henson's door to say someone had been poaching on his land. Henson followed the officer outside, unaware that about a dozen lawmen were hiding in the woods at his sprawling farm near South Boston. Henson appeared dumbfounded as lawmen emerged from the darkness to arrest him on two counts of attempted murder, investigators say. They say Henson hired a hitman to kill witnesses set to testify that he was the head of one of the biggest drug organizations in the southeast. Armed with a search warrant that night, investigators seized drugs, money, weapons, and financial records from Henson's trailer. They say a four-year investigation revealed that Henson operated an organization involved in murder, money laundering, and drug distribution. They were also investigating alleged corruption by government officials and lawmen. A federal grand jury indicted Henson Thursday on eight counts, including attempted murder. Across the state line in North Carolina, Henson's arrest barely made the news. But it was in this state on a few acres near Newton Grove, that authorities say that Philip Henry Barfield sold more than a million dollars worth of drugs for Henson. And it was here that investigators began putting together the pieces to tie Barfield to Henson and Henson to a multi-state drug empire. Investigators say Barfield was a lieutenant in Henson's organization. Court records say Barfield and others hauled the drugs in motorhomes and other vehicles from Georgia and Texas and stored them in Virginia and North Carolina. Henson's organization began to unravel four years ago with the arrest of Barfield's biggest drug customer, Jamie Hewitt of Supply. On February 18, 1998, Brunswick County Sheriff's detectives stopped the Ford Explorer that Hewitt was driving near Shalott. Inside, they found a pound and a half of marijuana and about a half an ounce of cocaine. Investigators found more drugs and financial records when they searched Hewitt's house. Two months later, the 29-year-old Hewitt was dead. Two bullets in his back. Investigators say that Hewitt never saw his assailant. He was unlocking a gate at his father's trucking business when the killer fired a high-powered rifle three times from a thicket about 200 feet away. Witnesses said they heard the gunshots and the squeal of car tires, but they never saw a thing. With little other evidence to go on, investigators started following the drug trail. Slowly, following one lead after another, that trail led to Barfield, a Sampson County man with a penchant for drugs, younger women, and violence. On a windswept day last March, lawmen ended Barfield's 10 years as a major drug dealer in Sampson, Johnston, 
and Brunswick counties. From January 1990 until his arrest on March 6, 2001, investigators say that Barfield sold more than 11 pounds of cocaine, 220 pounds of marijuana, and 17 and a half ounces of methamphetamine. On the same day that Barfield was charged, Lawman arrested his wife and his father. His brother would be arrested three months later. Dennis Barfield, his father, was a stroke victim and was deemed incompetent to stand trial. Charity, his wife, and Spencer Barfield, his brother, got reduced sentences by agreeing to cooperate with authorities and to testify against Philip Barfield. But in the end, just the threat of their testimony was enough. Shortly before he was to go on trial, Barfield pleaded guilty to all counts of drug trafficking and related charges. At age 44, he could be sentenced to four life terms in federal prison. His sentencing was scheduled for April 15, 2002 in Wilmington, North Carolina. He will die in prison, said Christine Dean, the U.S. attorney who prosecuted him. Investigators say Barfield and Henson, who is 60, remain suspects in Hewitt's slaying. They say lawmen in Kansas are investigating whether the homicides of a man and wife there are connected to the Henson Drug Organization. In Newton Grove and elsewhere, Barfield left behind a tangled mess of broken lives. They include the innocent family members of the people who will follow Barfield to prison. They also include his first wife, who now lies in a nursing home with severe brain damage. There is no telling how many people Philip Barfield got hooked on drugs and how many lives he has destroyed, says Landis Lee a Sampson County Sheriff's Captain. And although Barfield is in jail now, his name still evokes fear in some Newton Grove residents. An elderly couple who operate a business in town refused to discuss him. The man said he could write a book about Barfield, but he's too afraid to talk. Barfield, the man said, dropped out of school because of recess. He didn't like the play. Even as a teenager, Philip Henry Barfield cut a large figure in Newton Grove, an agricultural community with a traffic circle at its heart. U.S. 701, U.S. 13, and NC 5055 snake off the circle through vast fields of tobacco, beans, and cotton. Barfield did not live in this town of 600 people. He lived on the outskirts back then, just over the Johnston County line. But he liked to hang out around the circle in his blue Plymouth Roadrunner, a fittingly fast car for a kid living the fast life. Landis Lee became a rookie Sampson County Sheriff's deputy in 1974. It didn't take him long to get acquainted with Barfield. Back then, Lee said, Barfield's main crimes involved larcenies and traffic violations. Minor stuff, Lee called it. He had a reputation. John Hayes, chief of Newton Grove's two-man police force in those days, said Barfield used to get in trouble and then try to outrun the police on the back roads. He had no respect for the law, said Hayes, then a major with the Sampson County Sheriff's Department. Robert Mason, a former state trooper recalled a night in 1978 when he clocked Barfield driving about 90 miles per hour on US 701. Mason, now the Jones County Sheriff, said he chased Barfield from Smithfield to the Johnson-Sampson County line where Barfield crashed the car and ran away. He was caught a few minutes later. Mason said he charged Barfield with drunk driving, reckless driving, and speeding. A judge sentenced Barfield to three years of supervised probation. But the arrest only seemed to add to Barfield's allure. Hayes said that teenagers flocked to him. He was a leader, a natural-born leader, Hayes said. The kids would follow him anywhere. Of course, he always led them down the wrong highway. Lee said that Barfield began selling drugs as a teenager. He was always out raising cane and spending money. It doesn't take a scientist to know that if you don't hold a job, you don't walk around with a pocket full of $100 bills. By 1985, Barfield was deeply entrenched in the drug trade, and lawmen wanted to root him out. They had been building a case against Barfield for months, and by March of that year, they had enough evidence to bring him down. Getting that evidence had not been easy, said John Connerly, then the lead agent for the Sampson County drug team. Barfield had a violent reputation. Other drug dealers didn't want to talk about him, Connerly said. Eventually, undercover drug agents began to make buys from Barfield, but investigators wanted more. They wanted Barfield to sell them enough cocaine to keep him in prison for a long, long time. On the night of March 12, 1985, Lawman arranged for Barfield and another man to sell undercover agents a pound and a half of cocaine. A cautious Barfield tried to set the place for the transaction in the woods. Investigators said no, too secluded. Connerly said Lawman knew Barfield would be armed. They had seen a 357 pistol in his waistband earlier that night. Connerly said he also believes that Barfield was either drunk or on drugs. Investigators didn't want to take chances. There was a lot of talk that he would kill anybody who got in his way, Lee said. Barfield named another meeting place along a dirt road. But again, investigators declined. They wanted the deal to go down in the open. Barfield and his partner finally agreed to meet in a parking lot at the Newton Grove traffic circle around midnight. As the drug agents moved in to make the arrest, Barfield called on and exchanged gunfire with the lawman 
and ran. Lee chased Barfield through a trailer park and got hit by a Newton Grove police car, breaking his knee in the process. The injury cost him a year out of work, but the drug buy proved successful. The agents quickly caught Barfield and his partner and put them in the Sampson County Jail. Bail for Barfield was set at a million dollars. Shortly after their arrest, jailers discovered that Barfield and his partner had made a weapon, apparently from steel wire from a jail window. The two were then transferred from Clinton to Raleigh. Three months later, Barfield pleaded guilty to a single count of trafficking cocaine. He received a 35-year prison sentence and a $250,000 fine, but his stay in prison lasted just three and a half years. It seemed like you could arrest him and arrest him, and he would always find ways to beat the system. It has long been rumored that prominent Republicans got Philip Henry Barfield out of prison early after his drug conviction in 1985, but even the FBI could not prove that political favoritism led to Barfield serving only three years of a 35-year sentence for selling drugs. The rumor went that Barfield's father-in-law, McCoy Sutton, asked then-Sheriff Cranford Fan to help him get Barfield released. Back then, Fan was an influential Republican who helped raise money for party members, among them Samuel A. Wilson III, chairman of the State Parole Commission and the Republican candidate for Attorney General. Wilson said Barfield was paroled because of crowded prisons, his good prison record, and recommendations from people in Newton Grove. Late in the 1980s, the General Assembly approved a law that allowed nonviolent prison inmates to be released early because of severe crowding. It was a time when many North Carolina inmates served just a fraction of their sentences. Fans said at that time that he had concerns about Barfield's parole, but he supported it anyways. This boy's probation officer had a lot of good things to say about him. Fan told the Fayetteville Times in 1988, he was convinced that if anybody in prison had made a change, it was probably him. If the people who supervised him in prison think he earned the right, I'm not going to fight them about that. But prison records show that Barfield had been cited three times for violating prison rules, twice for disobeying prison officials, and once for possessing unauthorized money. He was found guilty of all three infractions. Prosecutor Dewey Hudson was furious at the prospect of Barfield's release. A month before it happened, he wrote a letter to the Parole Commission to allow this dangerous major drug dealer to be released back on the streets of society after serving only three years of a 35-year prison sentence, makes a mockery of the judicial system, and promotes disrespect for our parole system. Barfield got out anyways. Fan, who had a stroke in 1998, said he could not remember if he helped get Barfield paroled. I honestly can't remember if I did or didn't, he said. But Fan said, if he did help, it was on behalf of Sutton, Barfield's former father-in-law. Sutton had less trouble remembering. I went through a friend of mine who could influence the parole board, Sutton said, acknowledging that the friend was Fan. And boom, Philip was out just like that. Yeah, I, I helped him out of prison. He had his second chance. Sutton believes Barfield would have gotten out early anyways because of the prison crowding law. He said that he and Fan just speeded the process a little. Sutton had battled his own problems. He says he once drank heavily on the weekends and won. Sutton said he has not touched alcohol in 29 years. He's now an elderly man in ill health, but he still emphasizes his strong belief in God, family values, and Jesse Helms. And that's why, when Barfield first came into his life, Sutton despised him. Barfield was a troublemaker from a broken home. He was nothing like Sutton's daughter, who got excellent grades and stood out as a majorette in the high school band. Despite the disparities, the two fell in love. Without her father's blessing, Becky Sutton married Barfield on September 27, 1980. The marriage took place in Sutton's small ranch house, just off Newton Grove's traffic circle. Sutton said he looked at Barfield in his hallway that day and wished he could stop the marriage. I knew it wasn't right for my daughter to marry that man. It didn't take long to know why. Barfield worked hard as a truck driver, but he never seemed to pay the bills, Sutton said. He thought he had married a blank check when he married my daughter. I did a lot to help, but not a free ride. Shortly after Becky gave birth in 1981, the power company shut off their electricity. The Barfields moved in with the Suttons. Sutton said he knew his son-in-law had problems back then, but he also began to like him. Despite his many faults, Sutton and others say... Barfield is a charismatic man with a big heart. He had also become part of Sutton's family, and as such, a man worth trying to reform, Sutton believed. Sutton said he sat Barfield and his daughter down at his kitchen table and told them that they had to change their lives. 
he made notes on what he wanted them to do. Instead of following his wishes, they moved to a trailer park in Nash County near Middlesex, North Carolina. Sutton said he asked a social worker to keep a close watch over his daughter and his grandchild. I said, come hell or high water, I'm not going to see my granddaughter go down in this mess. The social worker called on August 23, 1983 to say the Barfields were having problems. Sutton said he rushed to his daughter, finding her drinking beer heavily at home, and at some point they went to a store together. She kept saying she thought the car would blow up. When they returned to the trailer, she thought it would explode too. Sutton said he took his daughter to a hospital in Wilson. The diagnosis was paranoid schizophrenia, manic depression, and substance abuse. Becky Barfield was transferred to a private hospital. A couple of days later, Philip Barfield called her and threatened to take their child away to his mother in Maryland. Sutton said his daughter got so upset that the doctors gave her Thorazine to calm her down, and she never came out of it. Today, his daughter cannot walk and can barely talk. She's been confined to a nursing home since October 1998, when she suffered further complications. It's been an ongoing struggle for all of us, really. We've seen the whole picture, and we couldn't do anything about it. Yet Sutton does not blame Barfield for his daughter's problems. He said he doesn't know for sure whether illegal drugs contribute to her illness or whether Barfield played a part in it. He said he does not believe that Barfield pushed drugs on his daughter. He thinks friends did. I'm not the blame game type person, Sutton said. She followed a plan of life that followed her to destruction. After her illness, Sutton hung a saying on a door. Each person is responsible for his own destiny. Meanwhile, Barfield moved back to Newton Grove, where he continued to sell drugs until his arrest in 1985. Three years later, Sutton was helping him out of prison. He believed that Barfield deserved a second chance. But there was another reason Sutton wanted his grandchild to grow up with at least one parent. I'd done what I had to do to protect my granddaughter. A year after Barfield's release, he was back in trouble. In November of 1989, Sheriff Fan filed a civil lawsuit seeking to close the Club 50 Night Club as a public nuisance. Court records show that Fan believed the club on NC50 in Newton Grove was illegally selling alcoholic beverages and possibly cocaine and marijuana. Barfield was among the nightclub operators named in the lawsuit. The club was padlocked by court order in 1990. More trouble came quickly. In 1991, a state trooper arrested Barfield on a charge of drunken driving. On the way to being booked, Barfield opened the patrol car's door to stop sign, jumped out, and ran into the woods. The same night, Lee, now a sheriff's captain, stopped Barfield in a stolen pickup and charged him with larceny and resisting arrest. Barfield was paroled from prison eight months after re-entering the system. It didn't take him long to get back into the drug business. Initially, Barfield bought marijuana from various sources and sold it mainly in Clinton, according to a pre-sentencing investigation. In 1994, Barfield hooked up with Leo Henson, who distributed cocaine and other drugs on a large scale throughout the United States, the report said. Barfield moved to a home near South Boston, Virginia that year to be closer to Henson. He returned to the Newton Grove area in 1996 after his house in Virginia burned down. He eventually bought a new double-wide trailer and placed it on land near Watershed Road. The land is about two miles north of Newton Grove, near the Johnston County line, and about a mile from his father's home. The home became Barfield's main place for selling drugs, and Jamie Hewitt became his biggest customer. When Hewitt was charged with drug offenses in 1998, a magistrate set bail at a million dollars, but the bail was soon lowered to $50,000, and Hewitt's father bailed him out two days after his arrest. The bond reduction seemed extraordinary. People started wondering whether Hewitt was cooperating with drug agents who wanted to arrest his supplier. U.S. Attorney Christine Dean said that Hewitt never became a government snitch. He was murdered in Brunswick County before he got the chance. But a county away near Newton Grove, Barfield began to get nervous. Court records showed that he talked to his drug buyers, trying to reassure them that Hewitt's arrests posed no threat. Two months after he got out of jail, Hewitt sat in church, attending Easter service with his family. He was really trying to change his life, his mother told the Wilmington Morning Star. Two days after that service, Hewitt lay dying in his brother's arm, two bullets from a high-powered rifle in his back. Hewitt's death didn't end Barfield's troubles. Instead, investigators started following a drug trail that led them to the top of one of the biggest drug organizations in the Southeast. Investigators say that Philip Henry Barfield led a reckless life. They say he sold drugs and used them at the same time. He carried wads of money in his pocket, and he never kept a job. They say he slept with young women and sold drugs mainly to young people, whom he could intimidate and manipulate. Barfield moved from place to place, but always ended up coming home. For part of his life, Barfield lived near his father on land that had seen five generations 
of his family. His father still lives in an old house on a dirt trail off Harper House Road outside Newton Grove in Sampson County. His brother's family lives in a well-kept trailer behind his father. Part of the time, Barfield lived up front near the main road, but he used all of the property. He thought he owned everything down here, says his sister-in-law, Lisa Barfield. He acted like he ran everything. He just came here and took over. At all hours of the night, Barfield could be heard on her land. We knew what Philip was doing. Everybody in Newton Grove knew what he was doing, but nobody in Barfield's family tried to stop him from dealing drugs. You would just have to know Philip to know why you wouldn't say no to him, Lisa Barfield said. He just had that, I don't know, domination. I guess you would say he's a dominating personality. Philip was always the cool one. He was the man. His behavior would help lead to his downfall. After the still unsolved death of Jamie Hewitt, Barfield's main drug customer, who was shot in 1998, Barfield's behavior became erratic. Although he seemed to know that lawmen were closing in on him, relatives and investigators say, it didn't stop him from building a methamphetamine lab in a shed attached to his mobile home. A pre-sentencing investigation indicates that the lab was built around 2000. Testimony and the sentencing of his wife showed that the Barfields injected a lot of speed. Charity Barfield was an addict her lawyer said. Lisa Barfield said she tried to help Charity. She would tell her that her mind was not functioning properly. She said Charity Barfield felt trapped in the marriage and couldn't get out of it. She was a drug addict with nowhere else to go. And Philip Barfield wasn't fearing much better. He'd talk crazy, Lisa Barfield said. They would stay up for days. They were just crazy. Philip Barfield's temper led to court action on May 16, 2000, when his wife took out a protective order against him. The day before, court records show that Philip Barfield had been drinking, and became angry because his wife went for a ride with a friend. He thinks I'm supposed to sit at home by myself with no one, Charity Barfield wrote in her request for a restraining order. Well, a little time went by, and he came back in, slapping me, talking about how he was going to show me what hate was, and he spit in my face. She wrote that her husband knocked her across a chair and twisted her arm until she thought it might break. Philip has done this to me once again while I'm five months pregnant, she wrote. I'm afraid for my life, because if you'll look at his record, well, you'll know why. When I looked back to the house to gather my things, he left me a message. It was a book lying on the counter that's printed in big, bold letters. Contract Killers. Charity Barfield never left her husband. She couldn't, said her mother, a shallot business owner who asked not to be named. He had total control over her. Whatever he told her to do, she did. Charity Barfield was just 18 years old when she met Philip in 1993. He was 35. Before they met, her mother said, Charity Barfield was a pretty girl with a bubbling personality. She basically had the world by the tail. She was nothing like the person she became. She just suddenly became completely different. Today, her mother cares for the Barfield's two children, ages 5 and 15 months, while their father awaits sentencing and their mother serves a 10 and a half year prison sentence. My grandson asks me every night, when is my mama coming home? My grandchildren got ten and a half years. I got ten and a half years. We all got ten and a half years. It's an evil situation, and this should have been stopped a long time ago. Her mother said that the Saturday before their arrest, Philip Barfield stuck a gun in her daughter's mouth during an argument and pulled the trigger. The chamber was empty. Lisa Barfield said her sister-in-law did try to leave her husband. Once, she said. Charity Barfield went to investigators to tell them about his involvement in drugs. Brunswick County Sheriff's Captain Gene Cazone confirmed that Charity Barfield talked to him about her husband in 1998, shortly after Hewitt's murder. Someone contacted a member of her family and she contacted us, Cazone said. He described Charity Barfield as somewhat cooperative. She filled in a lot of blanks and she gave us a starting point. That starting point led to South Boston, Virginia, where investigators had arrested Eric Brown on drug charges. Investigators say that Brown had been one of Barfield's customers, and if he wanted to stay out of prison, Lawman told Brown that he was going to have to work for them. With the government's backing, Brown bought more drugs from Barfield. This time, investigators said they found Barfield's fingerprint on a bag of marijuana. It would become a major piece of evidence against him. Not long afterward, investigators started using Timothy Bellamy as an informant to buy drugs from Barfield and his friend Michael Crumbly. The records say Bellamy recorded 16 tapes involving drug deals with Barfield. The tapes were made over the phone and in person. They included one drug deal in which Lisa Barfield's husband Spencer was present. That deal happened at his father's home, records show. After gathering a mountain of evidence, a small army of officers from at least six law enforcement agencies moved in to arrest the Barfields on March 6 of 2001. They seized nine guns, methamphetamine, and records from Barfield's home and the methamphetamine lab from his shed. Outside, they found all-terrain vehicles, a lawnmower, and heavy equipment that investigators say were stolen and swapped for drugs. In Spencer Barfield's barn, lawmen found remnants of the methamphetamine lab 
a gun, and a copper still for making moonshine. Lisa Barfield swears that her husband never knew those items were in the barn. She said Philip Barfield placed them there that morning. He knew he was about to be arrested. Spencer Barfield would be arrested three months later. His wife believes authorities forced the charges on him because he initially refused to cooperate. She said her husband never sold drugs and tried to distance himself from his brother, but a judge saw things differently. Although Spencer Barfield did eventually cooperate with the investigation, Judge James Fox ruled on February 5, 2002, he knew what his brother was doing and helped to further his drug trade. On the same day that Charity Barfield was sentenced to ten and a half years in prison, Fox sentenced Spencer Barfield to seven and a half years, and Barfield's friend Michael Crumbly got 14 years. Philip Barfield, who has pleaded guilty, is scheduled for sentencing in April. He could get four life terms. As Fox imposed a sentence on Barfield's wife, brother, and friend, Lisa Barfield cried uncontrollably. Their 11-year-old son sat by her side, stroking her arm. His father will be in prison for at least five years. In a nearby seat, Crumbly's fiance, a striking redhead who recently gave birth to Crumbly's son, fought tears alone. The boy will not get to know his father for at least another 10 years. Two days after the sentencing hearings, Leo Henson stood accused of hiring a hitman to kill witnesses. Investigators refused to identify them. Major Richard Pulliam of the Halifax, Virginia Sheriff's Office said investigators didn't want to arrest Henson so soon. They wanted to go after his top associates first, but people's lives were in danger. He said eight to ten witnesses remain in jeopardy. Pulliam and others say that Henson is capable of almost anything. There's no doubt in my mind that he has the resources to do whatever he wants. Pulliam said he first met Henson at a farm in 1994. He portrays himself as a gentleman farmer. Henson is anything but. On June 24, 1985, three Pitt County Sheriff's deputies responded to a domestic call at Leo Henson's farm near Farmville. They found a raging Henson outside, destroying his own property. Patrol Chief Rick Fisher said that Henson grabbed the deputy by the tie, started smashing a board against the windshield of a patrol car. Then Fisher said, Henson jumped into a two-ton green truck and started yelling, I'm going to kill all you sons of bitches. Fisher said that Henson rammed two patrol cars into ditches. Deputies responded with gunfire, hitting Henson in the shoulder and twice in the legs. When Henson was finally subdued and loaded into an ambulance, Fisher climbed into the back to ride with him. He said Henson rolled his head back, looked straight at him, and asked if he was one of the deputies who had shot him. Yes, Fisher replied. He said when he got out of prison, he was going to come back and kill me. He's an intimidating man. I watched my back for a long time. Henson was charged with three counts of assault with intent to kill, assault on a policeman, two counts of damage to property, and one count of possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He was convicted in November of 1985 and served five years of a 30-year sentence. Three months after his parole record show, he was charged with possessing drugs and received probation. Fisher said he didn't know about Henson's most recent arrest in Virginia, but it didn't surprise him. Henson had been convicted in 1984 of possessing drugs in Duplin County, North Carolina. He had been out of prison only two months before he tried to run over the deputies with his grain truck. Fisher said that deputies suspected that Henson was selling drugs the day they shot him. He was very resourceful, and he had money at his disposal, Fisher said. Investigators say that Henson stayed in the drug business, becoming the leader of one of the major drug organizations in the Southeast, and Philip Barfield of Newton Grove was one of his chief lieutenants. Now both of them were in custody. Henson on charges of plotting to kill witnesses against them, and Barfield awaiting sentencing after pleading guilty to federal drug charges. In 1994, Henson left North Carolina for South Boston, Virginia, where he began to buy large chunks of farmland. He also began to take an active role in a move to bring corporate hog farms to Halifax County, a proposal that divided the Virginia County just north of the North Carolina border. In 1999, Henson submitted a request for a land use permit to build 12 hog houses on his farm. He was backed by Carroll's Foods of Duplin County, where Henson once lived. Instead of granting the permit, The Halifax County Board of Supervisors approved more stringent setbacks for hog farms. Henson fought back with a lawsuit, alleging that Jack Donovan, head of a group opposed to corporate hog farming, gave the board Henson's criminal record in an effort to sway its vote. Henson sued Donovan for $27 million, saying his actions kept him from building the hog houses and resulted in lost income. Donovan countersued and won an undisclosed amount, but he said he never felt safe until Henson was arrested this month. Until then, he slept with a double-barrel shotgun at his bedside. I knew the kind of characters they were, Barfield and Henson both. They would take out anybody who would stand in their way. Major Richard Pulliam of the Halifax County Sheriff's Office said that Henson's trademark is fear and intimidation. Leo is a feared man. Fear is a necessity. You need that to control your associates and to keep your competitors at bay. His competitors fear him, and the citizens of our community fear him. But Henson has never received more than a traffic citation in South Boston 
until his arrest this month. Today, he's being held in federal custody in Roanoke, Virginia, without bail. Investigators suspect that Hewitt was shot to keep him quiet, but the trail from him still led them to Barfield and Henson. Investigators have not said who Henson was hiring to kill the witnesses in the case, nor have they disclosed much about how the drug operation worked. But lawmen say they will keep digging for answers. And after four years, the arrest of Barfield and Henson, they say, the investigation is not over. This could be termed a new beginning, said Pulliam. And you'd think that'd be all to the story, because that's a lot, but it's not, and there's more. But Barfield died in 2012. The rest of the story, Henson has a different crony a different set of cronies. From the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in 2005, argued September 19, 2005, decided December 30, 2005. In the fall of 1999, federal and state law enforcement agents in the Eastern District of North Carolina began investigating Leo Henson and Eric Brown on suspicion of drug trafficking. After being contacted by the agents and informed of the investigation, Brown agreed to cooperate in the investigation of Henson. At the agent's direction, Brown met with Henson and recorded their conversations on three separate occasions in the fall of 2000. Henson, however, was guarded in these discussions and did not incriminate himself. Henson later learned of Brown's cooperation with authorities. Thomas Cole was a methamphetamine dealer. He was familiar with both Henson and a man named John Cardwell, having attempted to sell Henson and Cardwell methamphetamine at some time in the past. In the summer of 2001, Cole was arrested in the Western District of Virginia on unrelated drug trafficking charges and found in possession of documents linking him to Henson. Like Brown, Cole agreed to assist agents in their investigations of Henson. Cole contacted John Cardwell to arrange a meeting with Henson, to whom he proposed he give helpful information about the investigation. On October 23, 2001, the three men met in a restaurant in Danville, Virginia. Cole recorded the conversation. Henson complained of his legal troubles, focusing in particular on Brown. Cole asked if Henson could get to Brown. Henson said that Brown needed to be killed, and Cole indicated that he would be willing to do it. Henson asked Cole his price, and Cole said he would do the job for $25,000. Henson offered him $50,000 and informed Cole that he would need to kill Brown's wife as well. The men agreed that Cardwell would give Cole a picture of the Browns and the Browns' address so Cole could carry out the murder. Over the next few months, Cole and Cardwell spoke several times. In these conversations, the two men had coded conversations from which a reasonable juror could have inferred that Henson had drugs he was willing to sell Cole. More importantly, they also discussed the Browns. Cardwell assured Cole that Henson was serious about killing the Browns and agreed to be the middleman for the deal. Because Henson was nervous about dealing with Cole directly, Due to the North Carolina investigation against him and what he thought was Cole's ongoing drug trafficking, in his duty as middleman, Cardwell agreed to deliver the money from Henson to Cole after Cole killed the Browns. Cardwell, however, never arranged any drug deals between Henson and Cole, nor did he give Cole the Browns' picture or address. The agents became frustrated with the investigation and instructed Cole to bypass Cardwell and instead attempt to deal directly with Henson. On January 29, 2002, Cole and Henson met at Henson's home to discuss potential drug deals and the plan to murder the Browns. Henson instructed Cole to carry out the murders, described the Browns to Cole, and provided a way for him to find them, and gave him $1,000 in traveling money. Agents later arranged for a newspaper in the town where the Browns lived to run a false story about the Browns' disappearance. On February 7, 2002, Cole brought the article to Henson, who, after expressing his satisfaction, burned it to conceal evidence of his link to the assumed murders. At the time, Henson paid Cole $4,000 and agreed to pay him the balance of the $50,000 by giving him a kilo of cocaine. Later that evening, sometime between 11 p.m. and midnight, agents high in sheets of the Drug Enforcement Administration in Roanoke, Virginia, executed a search warrant of Henson's residence. When the agents arrived at Henson's residence to arrest him, they knocked and announced their presence several times before Henson came to the door. When Henson opened the door, he was immediately arrested and told that he was under arrest for his participation in the murder-for-hire collusion. Once in custody, Henson was advised of all of his rights, and he stated 
that he understood them. He did not, however, specifically invoke his rights. The agents searched Henson's house and discovered a loaded gun. 15 to 20 minutes after the arrest, the agents transported Henson to Roanoke City Jail, which was approximately two hours away. Henson was handcuffed with his hands in front of him and placed in the front seat of the agent's car. An hour and a half or so into the drive, Henson began talking about farming and continued to talk for about 20 to 30 minutes. As the car approached Roanoke, Agent High asked Henson why he had not immediately come to the door when he announced their presence. Henson stated, If I knew it was the police, I would have gotten a gun, and there would have been a gunfight, because I would rather be killed than go to jail. Henson and Cardwell were charged in the United States District Court for the Western District of Virginia with one solicitation to commit murder, two, attempted murder of a government witness, three, witness tampering, four, retaliating against a government witness, five, conspiracy to murder a government witness. In addition, Henson was charged with being a felon in possession of a gun. Henson moved to sever the gun count from the murder for hire counts. The district court denied the motion, holding that the counts were related because Henson's gun possession and involvement in the murder for hire were each related to the drug trafficking and that Henson would suffer the prejudice from the joinder. At trial, Henson moved to suppress his statement to Agent High that he would have gotten a gun and started a gunfight if he had known the police were at his door. Henson argued that he had not waived his Miranda rights before giving the statement. The district court denied this motion. This goes back and forth for years and years. They actually get they actually get some leadway here. They get resentenced. So Barfield ended up with four life sentences before he died in prison in 2012. Henson's going to get out in 2022. He's up in federal prison in Lexington now. It's interesting. One of the things I did do, though, was there's a, a mention in there from that 2002 article about this couple out in Kansas. So I used his criminal record and his travel history to narrow down where he had been and when he possibly could have been in Kansas. And I think I found someone. I think I found two someones that he could have potentially killed out there in the process of whatever drug transactions he was up to in that area. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was made possible by LabrotiCreations.com. That's L-A-B-R-O-T-T-I-E-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S.com. Check out the merchandise and specifically their fun pop pet art custom pieces made from photos of your very own pet. Use the promo code CRIMEXS for 20% off a fun, brightly colored, happy piece of art for your own pet at their site, LabrotiCreations.com. Music in this episode was licensed for True Crime XS. You can reach us at our website, True Crime XS com or at our email at truecrimexs at gmail.com. You can leave us a voice message or call us or text us at 252-365-5593. Please like and subscribe if you want to hear more. You can come over and check us out at patreon.com, sometimes on Twitter and Instagram, all at truecrimexs. From the Leavenworth Times, August 7th, 2008. Ten-year-old murder still unsolved. On August 9th, 1998, the bodies of Lawrence and Teresa Daigle were found wrapped in tarps near Leavenworth County Roadway. Ten years later, their murders remain unsolved. It's an open investigation, said Sheriff Dave Zellner. He said authorities continue to work on the case as people call with information, or information is obtained through the investigations of other cases. He said county investigators have worked on the case with the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. I think it's solvable, Zellner said. But Saturday will mark the 10th anniversary of the discovery of the bodies west of the city of Leavenworth. Lawrence, 54, and Teresa, 51, died from gunshot wounds. Zellner did not reveal Wednesday what type of firearm is believed to have been used in the homicides. But Zellner said that the Daigles probably were killed the afternoon or the night before they were found. The bodies were found on a Sunday morning along Dakota Drive west of 171st Zellner said he had no reason to believe they were killed in that location. We feel like they were dumped there, he said. The Daigles were from Houston. Zellner said it's believed they came to the Kansas City area for drug-related reasons. He said authorities believe the couple had reached Kansas City, Kansas the afternoon of August 8, 1998. We have an idea of what they were doing here, Zellner says, but he didn't elaborate. They apparently had traveled from the Wichita area. Zellner said that Lawrence Daigle had been in Wichita and his wife had traveled from Texas by bus to join him there. Zellner said the 
the bodies were discovered by area residents who saw the tarps and thought they were too good to be thrown away. Zellner said the bodies had been dumped in a wooded area. The area was said to have been littered with garbage. The sheriff said it was not uncommon for people to dump trash in this area. Lawrence Daigle was reported to have had an extensive criminal record in Kansas and in Texas. Authorities were able to identify him through his fingerprints, which were said to be on file with the FBI. Zellner said Lawrence Daigle had served time at the Lansing Correctional Facility. On August 14, 1998, authorities located a pickup truck that Zellner said belonged to the Texas couple. The truck was found in a parking space at an apartment complex at 712 North 13th Street, Terrace, which Zellner said was about a mile from where the bodies were found. At the time, the vehicle was seized and processed. He said authorities canvassed the neighborhood. An occupant at the apartment complex reported seeing two men by the parked truck at about 6.45 p.m. on August 8th, the day before the Daigle's bodies were found. He did not see the men get out of the truck. At one point, the men walked toward the area of a vacant apartment. The two men were picked up in a car that traveled south. One of the men was described as being white and between the ages of 25 and 35. He had dark, bushy hair. He was about six feet tall and of medium weight. He wore an unbuttoned plaid shirt and blue jeans. He was said to have had a clean-cut appearance. The second man was white and between the ages of 25 and 30. He had blonde hair, which was said to be medium length or longer. His hair was pulled back, possibly into a ponytail. He was about six feet tall and had a medium build. He was wearing a white t-shirt and blue jeans. The vehicle used to pick up the two men was described as an early 1980s four-door car, beige or light brown, with a light-colored top. In December of 2000, the Kansas governor's office announced that a $5,000 reward was being offered for assistance in this case. Information about the reward of the murders can be found on the Kansas Bureau of Investigation website.